appreciate your patience. So I noticed Miranda and Sister Thornton are sneaking in over there and uh, just wanted to say that your families have been on our hearts uh, this week. Uh, incredibly difficult for you and uh, we're glad that you're here. So. Um, all right. We are continuing our series through the writings of the Apostle Peter uh, this week. And last week we finished 1 Peter, and this week we uh, are going to, we're just going to do this week and next week in 2 Peter. So just two chapters, um, or, or two, two lessons. And uh, we're in chapter 1 this week. If you would like to turn your, in your Bibles there, you can, uh, you can certainly do that. And follow along, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. Uh, while you're doing that, I will just give you this piece of, uh, I think, interesting information about 2 Peter, if you're not particularly familiar with it. And that is that uh, if you take time to read 2 Peter, and then immediately go over and read Jude. Jude is uh, a chapter long. And you will see that there is tremendous similarity between the second chapter of Second Peter, and the letter of Jude. And so there's a lot of conjecture as to whether Jude copied Peter or Peter copied Jude or if they both copied someone else and then put their twist on it. Um, but they, they cover similar material, uh, both dealing with uh, false teaching, uh, but they, they even reference works, other, other written works, um, Traditions about Noah and what happened in the days of Noah that come from other books outside the Bible. And uh, so they have these ideas that aren't found anywhere else in the New Testament except in 2 Peter 2 and Jude. So oftentimes when you get a commentary uh, or a commentary series, it will go, you know, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, work its way through. But when it gets to 1 Peter, 1 Peter will often have its own book and then there'll be 1, 2, 3 John and then 2 Peter and Jude. Or well, they might put Second Peter and Jude after First Peter. Anyway, but you get the idea. Uh, and so, it, there's as you think or study about Second Peter, it's just interesting to consider its connection with the letter of, of Jude. But we're actually going to avoid that. I think uh, next week. I think we'll be in chapter three, and uh, this week we're in chapter one. No real reason, just that we have two weeks, and that's the two sections I want to cover. As we reflect, though, on um, our faith, what it means to, to be a Christian, how we think about Christian life, it seems to me that very often we think about um, our faith in uh, very decisive terms. Uh, so we, we might ask a question, is someone saved? Right? So... Uh, if you bring a friend to church, somebody might come up to you and say, are they a Christian? Are they saved? Have they been baptized? Right. And, uh, and, and that yes or no response is really what we're, we're looking for there. Basically, we're asking, is that person in or out? Are they lost or are they saved? And so we, we tend to view people in re relation to the church as either one thing or the other, in or out. Um, and so that's 
certainly, I think, an important question. I'm not at all you know, trying to diminish that. If the person has no relationship with God, then out of love, we want those people to come into relationship with God. That's vital. That's the Great Commission. That's the, the purpose of, of sharing the gospel. Uh, one of the key reasons the uh, church exists is to spread the gospel to people who haven't heard it and, uh, or accepted it. And uh, Ernest, if you're back there, I think I need your help with this clicker to get it going. Um, but Peter isn't writing his letter to unbelievers. Okay? And so when Peter thinks of the church and thinks of his audience, he's not thinking in terms of are they lost or saved? Are they in or are they out? Like we sometimes as a church spend so much energy trying to define who's in, who's out. And Peter isn't concerned about that in this letter as he addresses a group of Christians. And, and in fact, I think we can go so far as to say that a group of Christians that spend excessive energy on who's in, who's out, or thinking of Christianity just in terms of, you know, are you baptized, are you not baptized, that that can actually be problematic. It can cause problems for Christians. And, and here's what I mean by that. You see, it sets the bar for what a Christian is very low. Sets the bar for what a Christian is very low. Are you a Christian? Okay, what are we asking? In Church of the Christ, we're asking, have you been baptized? Okay. Well, that could have happened 30 years ago. You could have done it as a teenager. Right? But, but that's not what I'm asking you now. That's not what Peter's concerned with as he writes and says, are you a Christian? Or he's not asking that question, but he's writing to Christians. He's not concerned with, if I'm writing to Christians, my biggest concern is, were these people baptized 30 years ago? His concern is, are you living as followers of Jesus? And so when we talk to each other, when we come together, when we encourage one another, we're not asking each other, have you been baptized? Have you at some point in the past made a decision to commit your life to Jesus? Are you dependent upon the sacrifice of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Right? That was addressed at some point in your past, and that was super important. That may be the biggest decision you make in your life. Right? So I'm not downplaying that at all. But once that decision has been made, I think that sometimes we now are happy with that. Oh, that person's a Christian. Mission accomplished. And so think how the letters of the Bible would go at that point, right? Dear church, are you all depending on Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? If not, you need to. The end. Right? And so your New Testament is about this then. Some of you saying, yeah, I could do that, Bible reading plan. Um, and, and so what we actually find as we go through the New Testament and the, these letters are written to churches is, is that Peter and Paul, John, 
They spend very little time trying to sort out if their audiences are Christian or not, are in or out. But they spend an enormous amount of time saying to the church, are you committed to following Jesus? I think that's the question that we're confronted with today. One of the ways that we see the New Testament writers emphasize this uh, need, this this, um, urge to follow Jesus is to uh, create lists of what that lifestyle looks like. What are the values of Jesus? How are you doing it? Because to follow, I I think, uh, you know, have you ever followed someone from, you're going to a a picnic, you don't know exactly where the park is, and so you get in a convoy, right? You just follow the person in front of you. But our idea of follow is you're in two cars, you're at the back, they're at the front, you just sort of go behind them. But you can have different music on the radio, or no radio. Uh, You don't have to have the same hairstyle. Uh, You know, they might have long sleeves, you might have short sleeves to get ready for this picnic experience. And so there's this enormous amount of diversity as we follow the people in front of us to get to uh, the picnic. But if, when we say we're following Jesus, what it means is that we're attempting to mold our lives into his image. Now, he was a first century Jew. It's not suggesting that we need to dress and grow our hair the way that, that he did, fellas. Um, and you know, have the same beard that he would have had. You know, it's not that. It's not you know in that sort of detail. But it's more than just vaguely be in the area and head in the same direction. When we follow Jesus, we're seeking to absorb his character, to become like him, so that when people meet us, they can recognize that we've been hanging around him. And so these lists of behaviors that the New Testament writers give us are consistent with the values and the person of Jesus. So here we have uh, squeezed up onto the screen. I don't know if you can see that in the wing. Uh, but we have here three lists um, that, I, that came to my mind quite quickly. The first one is uh, the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. And the the list there is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Maybe you're humming along to a VBS tune as I run through that list. And Paul says this is what it looks like to live a life under the influence of the Holy Spirit. If we go over to uh, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, you you thought teenagers came up with the whatever, right? Right? But it was Paul. So next time they say, whatever, you can just say, is true. Oh, whatever. Is noble. Is right. I know, it doesn't work. If you've got King James, it's whatsoever. And teenagers don't say that. Okay, so you've got to update for this to work. Um, All right, so whatever is true, whatever is noble... Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy. Think about these things. 
Okay. Another list of virtues. Uh, Colossians chapter 3. This one doesn't have a catchy name, but it's a list of virtues. Um, it's sort of spaced out a little bit towards the end. But compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive. And over all these virtues, put on love. Now, these are certainly not the only what we'll call virtue lists in the New Testament. You can think of 1 Corinthians 13, and we go, oh, that's all about love. But it is, but it's also about forgiveness. It's all about long-suffering. It's, you know, there's a whole list of things that uh, sort of fit under other virtues that fit under that heading of love. We could go to uh, look at the pastoral epistles and uh, uh, Timothy and Titus as they talk about the uh, character that elders and deacons should have. And, and again, we get a list of these are virtues. Of the type, what a godly person looks like. And so we find these lists popping up um, throughout the New Testament. What's interesting is they're not all the same, right? And so if we were in a Bible class, we would uh, not just have three columns, you know, we might have six or ten columns, and then we'd start comparing them and go, look, which ones show up the most, and we'd sort of analyze them in that way. Uh, We won't do that this morning. But that would be an, an interesting study. Our text today in 2 Peter chapter 1, um, verses 5 and 7, contains another of these lists. And uh, we might think of it, if we want to give it a name, as spiritual addition. Okay? I know it sounds a little mathematical, which, which may intimidate you, but spiritual addition. Before we jump into that, let's look at uh, verses 3, verse 3 and 4. I think uh, verse 3 through 11 is really a sermon that Peter has included here. Uh, That makes it easy for me today. Uh, So in verse 3 and 4, it says, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. I don't want to spend a lot of time in these verses, but if you go back to the beginning of verse 3, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us. That's good to know. (laughs) That's good to know that that God's divine power, uh, that could be the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, It doesn't actually say who the his is. It could be the Jesus through the resurrection. It could be through the Holy Spirit. But the divine power has given us everything we need to live a godly life. And, and it's so important, I think, that we understand this concept because how often do we encounter people uh, overwhelmed with the need to live a godly life, maybe even in order to become a Christian? And, and that's just it's not the, the way things work. None of us are able to live a godly life on our own. But it's his divine power that gives us the ability to live that life. As we come to know him, through our knowledge of him who called us, by his own glory and goodness. So that's at the core of all this. Regardless of what comes next, we need to keep in mind that the power to live the life that God wants us to live doesn't come from us. It comes from God. And, and then in verse 4, through 
these, he's given us these very great and precious promises. Here he's saying uh, that the, you know, we're experiencing the promises that were given in the past. That not just that we're given the words that something's going to promise that something's going to happen in the future, but we're experiencing uh, the, the coming of the Messiah, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, the arrival of the new creation, maybe in part, not in full, but we're experiencing things that other prophets uh, have only, only heard of uh, before. First Peter chapter 1 uh, makes that sort of reference. So we're experiencing these promises so that we can participate in the divine nature. Um, Like our life as Christians is not just one where we go through life just a little differently from everyone else. Our calling as Christians is to participate in the divine nature, to, to experience the presence of God, to live within the presence of God, to be influenced by the presence of God in our lives. Um, it, it says, having escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. Now, we still sin. We still mess up. Um, but we are not overwhelmed by the corruption of the world. The, the, in that sense, we've escaped it because we are within the kingdom of God. So, let's come down to verse 5. Um, it, it's written... As we look at this this list, we see that it's written in a format that at first glance makes it seem as though each virtue on the list depends on accomplishing the item before it. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. Uh, And I'm reading the NIV, it just says, and to goodness. But and add to goodness, knowledge, is really how we... We're thinking as we read that. And add to knowledge, self-control. So at, at first glance, you think, okay, I start out with faith. When I've got faith, then I add goodness to it. When I add goodness, that when I have goodness, then I add. And, and we think of it as like building a brick wall, you know, working our way up. But I, I want to suggest that's probably not what Peter is intending for us. Because if you think that through... Um, love comes at the end, right? So you don't have to worry about love. Like somebody, why aren't you more loving? Oh, I'm working on self-control at the moment. I'm only a level three Christian, a level four Christian, right? Um, and so you, know, you, you're a level seven. I can tell. You know, so we're not. Peter is not saying here's the you know like a computer game, a Mario Brothers with different levels. You know, we're like he's not setting it up like that. He's saying uh, we'll get to I think what the ad means in in a little bit. But I want us just for now to say these are all things that all Christians should be seeking to incorporate into our lives. So while that sequence, it's not a sequential list, I do think the beginning and the end are important because it, it, it is moving somewhere. And so it begins with faith. I think we recognize that all of our Christian journeys begin with faith. We have faith that the Bible can be trusted. We have faith that Jesus is who he says he is. We have faith that the resurrection of Jesus not only happened as a historical event, but it really is a promise that we look forward to a similar resurrected life. We have faith that God is going to fulfill the promises in the future as he has in the past. We have faith that the Holy Spirit really does indwell me like God promises that he does. We have faith 
that my sins can be forgiven, that God is not going to hold them against me, that the sacrifice of Jesus does grant me forgiveness and and give me relationship with God. All of those are based upon faith. I can't prove any of them to you. Faith is where our relationship with God begins. And, And as our relationship grows, as we become formed into His image, as we adopt these character traits into our lives, we come to a place where we're at the end of it. And, and so like the goal is love. That's what Christians are to be characterized as. And, and love infuses everything else in between faith and love. But, but our goal as Christians is to love purely. Love as God has loved. And so I think the starting point and the ending point of this list do have significance. I remember years ago listening to a preacher and for whatever reason, he decided to mock churches who, in his opinion, talked about love too much. It's my understanding that he wanted uh, preaching that focused instead on the evils of sin and on the importance of holiness and sinlessness in the life of It was my impression that for him, the ideal Christian was somebody who lived a sinless life. And I'm certainly not here today to say, hey, Christians, go out and sin. Uh, That's not at all. I mean, everything that we do as a church is regarding sin as our enemy and overcoming that enemy and becoming more Christ-like means eliminating sin from our lives. And I'm not going to dismiss the importance of holiness because we covered that in 1 Peter chapter 1. Be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. Okay, so it, it's a Christian value also. But if I'm forced, if you back me into a corner, I don't know why you would do this. And I, so I feel like it's a little bit of a fool's errand. But if I'm, I'm backed into a corner to identify one thing as the ultimate Christian virtue, I'm not going to come land on sinlessness. I'm going to land on love as that ultimate Christian virtue. If we go back to the lists that we saw a, a little earlier, I want to just explain how I get here. If we, we go back to these lists, you see the fruit of the Spirit begins with love. Okay? What's the first thing that the Holy Spirit uh, brings into our lives? It's love. And then we come to Colossians. It's not in Philippians. I'm aware of that. As we come to Colossians, uh, we go down through this list of really good virtues. Okay? Nobody's saying, oh, kindness isn't important. But we get, or forgiveness. But we get to the end of these, and, and he writes, over all these other virtues that are all great and are wonderful and godlike, he says, over all of them, put on love. Okay. Uh, we can think of 1 Corinthians 13, right? Uh, the chapter on love includes all these other virtues, arrives at the ends and says, hey, as Christians, you know what? There's three things that we can hang on to. We hang on to faith, we hang on to hope, and we hang on to love. But of those three wonderful things that are essential to our faith, Paul says the greatest of these is love. Okay. And, and then 
if we come back and we, we think of the words of Jesus, and we've sort of made them some core values here at Lawson Road. Uh, we don't preach on them often, but expressed as LR cubed. We emphasize here the words of, of Jesus. The L in the LR cubed stands for love. And we, we have there the, the greatest command is to love the Lord your God. The second command is to love your neighbor And the new command, by which all people will know that you are my disciples, is the love that we have for one another. And so I think when we look at these, it's not a stretch to say if there's one thing that the church should be known for and characterized for as we represent God to the world, it is the love that we have for God, just for people inside and outside the church. And so when we, we focus on sinlessness as the ultimate goal, one of the things that I've observed happen is we start to worry not just about our own sinlessness, not just about the sinlessness of the church, but also the sinlessness of our society. And, and it becomes overwhelming as we attempt to correct everyone around us. I think it's a, it becomes ultimately, from a very good motivation, uh, a, a problematic way to live. And so it's not shocking, I don't think, to see in Second Peter this idea um, that if we keep, if we begin with faith and we keep adding these other virtues to us, that we arrive at the destination of love. Now, I'm not trying to, some of you might say, oh, it's all just love. You know, um, what's that, that? It's an old song. All you need is love, right? Um, I'm not saying that either. I'm not saying that just because something is the ultimate or the greatest of these or whatever, however you want to phrase it, that that's the only necessary thing. But I do think if you look at these, uh, why, I mean, goodness is related to love. We're good to other people. We're, we're good in the sense of how God wants us to live because of love we have forgotten others. Uh, we want to know God just as a, a married couple or a dating couple want to know each other because they love each other. We want to exhibit self-control, yes, because we don't want to get in trouble, right? (laughs) Lack of self-control can really have nasty implications for us, but also in a pure sense, we want to exhibit self-control because we want to love the people around us, and we can go down through that list and say love is infused through there, and so if we add these godly virtues, they require and lead to love, but we need all of them. And so I want to give you this next step this week. I want you to, to look at this list and, and just for a moment consider what do you most need to give attention to in your life? As Peter writes and says, hey, you started out with faith, whether that was last week or 30 years ago. And he says, add to your faith. He gives this list of things to add to your faith. Which of those is the greatest need in your life at the moment? If you're a note taker, you may want to write that down, jot it in, send an email to yourself on your phone or something. And then the next question is, okay, that's good. How are you going to do it? How are you going to do it? Because it's easy to sit in church and say, I need more perseverance. My, my faith struggled during the pandemic. Yeah, so I know I need more perseverance. Okay. 
Now you've got to walk out the doors. And how are you going to increase that perseverance? I, I think a lot of times these are things we do in conversation with other people. Sometimes it's through prayer, and oftentimes it's through conversation with other people. So what is it that you need to give attention to and how might you do it, I think is your next step for all of us for this week. And so here's the thing. Peter says, add to your faith goodness, and add to goodness knowledge, and he has this adding, this, it's like a perpetual motion. And I think the reason he's saying is there's not a sequential thing. Do this first, this second, this third. What he's saying is, is, is giving us a sense of motion as you read through. And, and that's really different than if he just says, hey, here's a list of good things for you to have in your life. That, that's, there's no verbs and there's no action involved in that. It's just a list. Pin it on the wall and it looks pretty. But what he's saying is, no, there needs to be action. And so add, and then add, and then add. And nowhere does he say, and then sit back and relax. Right? It's always add. Look at uh, how he, he begins this in verse, uh, he introduces this in verse 5, right? For this reason, make every effort to, make every effort. And look, I mean, sometimes the Bible writers, I mean, if we literally made every effort to do everything they tell us to make every effort to do, we'd just be worn out and, and running in circles. You know, that this, he's writing to this group of people. They're not getting a letter from Paul, maybe ever. Uh, so this is what they get. You know, we have a lot more stuff. So we can't concentrate on everything at once. If you try to concentrate on everything at once, you concentrate on nothing. Right? But Peter's point is, work at it. Don't, I'm sending you this letter. Don't print it. Don't put fancy clip art around it. Don't turn it into a poster or a bookmark. He says, make every effort to add these things into your life. And don't stop. And then come down here in verse 8 at the end of this list. He again says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure. So he doesn't say once you've gained these qualities. He says, if you possess these in increasing measure, as you go, as you grow. And, and so I think that's why he uses that word add all the way through. But he has this two motivations, two concept outcomes. So make every effort, not for a month, but as long as you're a Christian. And he says, here's the two reasons I'm going to give you. The first is that this will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You ever feel that way in your relationship with Jesus? Ineffective and unproductive? Like I'm not feeling real close to Jesus at the moment. My life, I'm not real productive. I'm not involved in church ministries. I'm not you know, really doing anything with my faith. I'm glad I have it, but I'm not really doing much with it. And so Peter says, you know, if you are working on adding goodness to your life, or if you're working on adding godliness, you're going to be productive in your faith. You're going to be effective in your relationship with Jesus. You're focused on knowing God, your knowledge, or in persevering, then you're going to be closer to God. 
And, and then the, the second thing that he says is if you, if you don't work on them, you'll lose sight of your relationship with Jesus. And you'll forget that you've been forgiven of your sins. Like, what he's really saying is your salvation. Because if you forget that you've been forgiven of your sins, what's that say about your relationship with Jesus, your relationship with God, the importance of salvation in your life? He's really saying you've, you've kind of dismissed your salvation. You've dismissed that moment that we started talking about, that question of are you a Christian or not. He says if you're obsessed about that, but you haven't given any attention to the virtues and the character of God and, and how they impact your life and how you express that in the world as you move through it, he says if these things aren't important to you, if being like God, if following Jesus, if being Christ-like isn't important, then over time you'll forget why you do any of that stuff. You'll forget the things that you've been forgiven of because you'll probably just go back to them. So they're two pretty important reasons to keep adding to our faith. And then, like any good preacher, Peter, uh, in verse 10, comes to the conclusion. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, I've got two more things for you. Make every effort to confirm your calling and election which I think is by developing these virtues. He says, for if you do these things, here's the, here's the two more. <laughs> right, you thought I was finished, but here's the two more. You'll never stumble. Now, now, what that means there is not that you'll never sin. But I believe it means that your relationship with God, if you're focused on godliness, if you're focused on growing in perseverance, if you're focused on growing in, in Christ-likeness, he says then, your faith is going to have the, the strength that it needs to get you through difficult times, to keep you focused. You're also going to have the support of the church and of the people around you in those difficult times to get you through, to pick you up, to hold you, to keep you from stumbling, to keep you focused on Christ. And so that's the first thing, bonus. And then the second bonus point is he says that you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Right? If you don't do them, you'll forget you know, that you ever sinned, that you never needed a Savior. But if you do do them, if you focus on them, if you make these something that's important to your life, and, and you can expand this. It's not that this particular list, like if you wanted to go and look up all those other virtue lists and put them in between faith and love, you could certainly do that. Peter's not opposed to it, not saying this is the only list. But if you're adding these godly virtues, if you're focused on that, then he says there is a rich welcome when you enter the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Like, I don't know, that, that's just a fantastic imagery, isn't it? That, that at the end of the day, at the end of our lives, whenever that may be, that we come to a place and, and we've focused our lives on on the virtues, the character of God, incorporating that into our life and into our interactions with others and to, to be Christ-like because we're following him. And, and as we, we do that, we come and we receive not just, oh, here's my ticket, Mr. Conductor, to the pearly gates. We receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
I think Jesus is there at the gates, if you want to just work with me with that imagery for the moment. I think Jesus himself is there at the gates to welcome us in with a hug and a high five as we come home like the, the prodigal son in, in to, to his father. I think that's what a rich welcome looks like. It's not a commercial transaction that, yes, are you a Christian? Are you in? Are you out? Yes or no? Did you do enough on that day at that time? Did you meet the minimum requirements? It's not what our faith, our Christianity, our life is about. God wants to give us a rich welcome because it's very relational, uh, the, our whole experience with him. And, uh, and so our question isn't so much whether or not we're saved. That's an important question, but we shouldn't spend our whole lives answering that question. We answer that question once. Are you saved? And then the question that we have to answer from that point on is are we following Jesus?